Today is, is a special, special day. Do you guys know what today is? Opening day. Who said that so loudly? Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you so much. Today is opening day. It's the start of baseball. It has finally arrived. If you guys remember, I reminded you of this back in November, that it was coming, and now it is here, and I am excited. I love opening day. I love, you know, we get back, you get back to the, the crack of the bat, you know, the pop of the ball and the glove. If you go to the game, you get to smell the grass. And seventh inning stretch, you get to sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Uh, the Cubs, of course, we're excited about that. Yes, I love you people. Uh, but I don't just love opening day for baseball, oddly enough. I also love opening day because it's a reminder, it's a, it's a marker that spring is here. Now, I hesitate to say that in light of what happened yesterday. Um, I don't know about you guys, I had snow flurries a little, little bit at my house um, but welcome to Indiana. Uh, so I, I love opening day because it's a reminder that spring is officially here. The dark, dreary, gray days of winter are pretty much behind us at this point. I don't know if you remember this, but a few weeks ago it was about 72 degrees and it was sunny. It was absolutely beautiful. Do you remember that? Yeah, I see a lot of head nodding. Even last week on Easter was a beautiful day. But a few weeks ago it was sunny to, 72, it was sunny, and my daughter and I went for a hike. And uh, in all transparency, as we were hiking, I began to get a little teary, okay? And it wasn't because I was having this great moment with my daughter, unfortunately. It wasn't because I was having uh, this divine experience, and it wasn't my allergies, unfortunately. I, I was getting teary-eyed because I think I had forgotten what it was like to be warm. Uh, you know, we, we, go, we go through this winter, and we kind of forget. And I know you guys know that this is true. We forget a little bit. I forgot that. You know what? I didn't have to take a coat with me. This is beautiful. And so Emma kind of looked at me with a, with a look of concern, and she's like, Dad, are you okay? And, you know, yeah, I'm fine. I just got a little something in my eye. And um, after I composed myself, we were driving home, and I had remembered seeing this commercial. And so I looked it up for you guys and wanted to share it with you this morning. Check this out. Steve. Steve, it's spring. Spring? Spring! Spring! <laughs> Celebrate spring. Get everything you need at my... <laughs> it's true. We have, we, we have this weird amnesia and we forget that spring is coming and once it's here, we, we don't even believe that it's, that it's here. And so, it's with that we're going to turn to our text this morning and what we're going to talk about. Because this morning we're on this side of Easter, okay? We, we went through this period of Lent and we walked through Holy Week. We had Monday, Thursday and Good Friday and we celebrated Easter last week. We celebrated the fact that death does not have the last word. That we celebrate resurrection. Jesus' friends run to the tomb and they're told he isn't. Here And in that moment, everything changed. Jesus says, they'll take my life and I'll die, but that won't be the end. And so we find ourselves assuming that it's over, that it's lost, that it's gone, that it's broken, and it can't be put back together again. But we're to remember resurrection. Because it's in those moments of grief and despair and hopelessness that many times things are just beginning. And so we are a resurrection people, amen? We're an Easter people, Amen. And Jerry reminded us last week that Easter is not just a good place to visit or a good place to vacation, but Easter is a good place to live. 
But this Sunday, we find ourselves on this side of Easter. We don't have lilies everywhere. We don't have this big choir in the brass section. Things are a little different, and that's what we're going to wrestle with this morning. And so we're going to look at Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. So if you have your Bible or your phone, you can grab that, or you can follow along on the screens. Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, what things? And they replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And besides all this, it's now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning. And what they did not find his, they did, when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. And then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself and all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. There are events and experiences, if we allow them, that change the way we see the world. And I think this is true for all of us. There are events and experiences, if we allow them, that will change the way we see the world. And I think that's what's happening in this text this morning. Every so often, someone, something, or some experience comes our way, and it changes everything. Everything we thought we knew, we begin to question. Or everything we thought we knew, we see in a new light. We begin to see with a new lens, for good or for bad. It's like in the movie, The Sixth Sense. Do you guys remember that movie, The Sixth Sense? Yes? No? Well, I was going to go ahead and say, if you haven't seen The Sixth Sense, I'm going to spoil the whole movie for you. So uh, if you had plans after church to go home and Netflix The Sixth Sense, you might want to cover your ears, because what I'm about to say is going to ruin the whole thing. But it's like in the movie, The Sixth Sense. You get to the end of the movie, and you find out that Bruce Willis was really dead the whole time. And so what do you do? You replay the whole movie over in your head. 
You think about all the interactions that he had, all the scenes that he was in, and you think, it's totally different. This is a whole new way of looking at it. It changes the way we see it. Uh, and just, just so you know, that movie's 17 years old, so if you haven't seen it, I'm guessing you probably are not going to watch it. But anyway, it's also like the movie The Matrix. Do you guys remember the movie The Matrix? Oddly enough, The Matrix is 17 years old, so I don't know what was happening in 1999, but it made for some pretty good movies, right? And so in The Matrix, we find out that reality isn't really what it seems. In The Matrix, we found out that there's real reality and there's manufactured reality. And it changes the way we see the world. And I've had a few of these in my lifetime, and I'm sure you have as well. Events or experiences or people that change the way we saw the world. They offered us a new lens through which to see things and to process things. I remember being uh, in my history of Christianity class uh, in college in Cincinnati. And I remember sitting next to my roommate, Matt, who was taking, this, the, class, uh, taking the same class. And um, I was always a little jealous of Matt. Matt School came really easy to Matt. Things were just would click with him. Um, he always had cool new gadgets, which I was always a little jealous of. And I remember sitting in that History of Christianity class on that Tuesday morning, and Matt had just gotten a new phone, a new cell phone. And up until that point, cell phones were only used for one thing, calling or receiving uh, a call. And even that was a little precarious because it cost like 50 cents a minute to do it, right? You remember those days? Yeah, so, um, so he had this, in my opinion, very futuristic phone because it could do something other than calls. It could receive news updates, which I thought was fascinating. And so... We sat in History of Christianity, and we sat through a lecture on Martin Luther, and as we sat there, Matt handed me his phone. And as I looked at the phone, now granted, this was early technology, it was a little tough to read, the display looked kind of rough, but as I looked at it, it said, a plane has struck the North Tower of the World Trade Center. And I remember thinking, I, I, I didn't know the magnitude of that. I didn't know what that meant. And so I handed the phone back to Matt. And about 10 minutes later, another professor came into the room and whispered something to our professor. And then he let us know that classes were canceled. And the fact, classes for the rest of the day were canceled. And so Matt and I left school. I drove home to our apartment. He drove to his girlfriend's house. And I remember sitting in our apartment the rest of that day watching TV. Watching everything unfold. And I watched it all into the night. And I remember in the evening, I called my parents. I called my mom and dad to wish them a happy anniversary, which somehow seemed insignificant at that point. And my mom said that she had a cake on the kitchen table that said happy anniversary, and they hadn't eaten it because it didn't feel right. And so that Tuesday morning in September changed the way I saw the world. For better or for worse, the world seemed a little smaller, a little less secure than it did the day before. I've shared bits and pieces of this with you guys before, but in 2007 and 2008, I had the opportunity to, to travel to Ukraine with a group of high school students. And we partnered with an organization that ran summer camps for children with severe mental and physical disability. And in that society, it's a society where both parents need to work in order to put food on the table. They need, they need two paychecks. And when a family has a, a child with severe mental or physical disability, it requires them to stay home. And so they can't afford to do that because that job doesn't pay. And so when the Soviet Union was around, the Soviet Union uh, had uh, set up orphanages way out into the countrysides. And these orphanages were specifically for 
kids with disabilities. And so if you were a family who, who had a child and who needed to give it up to, a, to an orphanage, you could. And the Soviet Union would fund those orphanages, keep them full of supplies and staff. Well, when the Soviet Union collapsed, obviously the funding for those orphanages dried up. So the supplies stopped coming in and the staff weren't able to be employed. And so there were these orphanages full of children scattered throughout the former Union. Boys' orphanages and girls' orphanages. And people hadn't been in these orphanages for several years. Occasional people would, family occasionally would come and bring a little bit of food or, or water but by and large, these children rarely saw an individual. They did not go outside. They literally lived like dogs in kennels with much less supervision and care that even the dogs get here. And so, long story short, years after the collapse of the, the Soviet Union, uh, individuals began to find these orphanages and, and, and began to see them for what they were, which was a crime. Like, there's no way that anyone should be treated like this or should have to live like this. And so they would volunteer in these orphanages, and word kind of spread. Even people from the United States would travel to Ukraine, to other parts of the, the former Union, and volunteer in these orphanages to try to help these children. And so, um, for, for kids who had been seen for years and years as less than human, all of a sudden, there's organizations began to step in and care and love these kids. And so we would run these camps in the summer for these children, these young adults, and they were eight-day camps. And when the camp started, the kids were very hesitant, obviously. But throughout the week, you would see smiles begin to appear on their faces. And it was because for once in their life, they were loved and they were cared for and they were seen as humans. And so for me, watching a child go from invisible to being human and loved and cared for and appreciated changed the way that I saw the world. And in a strange way, it changed the way I saw the world. It made the world seem a little smaller, like I said it did in that Tuesday in September. But this time it seemed much more full of hope and love and possibility. And I think that's what's happening in our text this morning. We see what happens when our eyes are opened, when we're given a new lens to see the world. And so with that, let's kind of recap our story. We have two individuals walking on the road. We have Cleopas and somebody else. Luke doesn't give us the name. We're not entirely sure who that person is. It could be Cleopas' wife. It could be just another follower of Jesus. We're not sure. And honestly, it's not really important who that other person is. Although, if I were the person who Luke neglected to name, I'd probably be a little ticked. But anyway, we, we don't know exactly who that second person is. But we know they're followers of Jesus. We know they're followers of Jesus because they've come from being with the former 12. It's 11 now because Judas isn't with us. But they were with the 11 now, and they know where the 11 are. And now they're heading from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And on their way, they unknowingly give the risen Jesus a crash course on what happened to Jesus. And then Jesus says, hang on, you missed a few things. And he shows them all of scripture. And he says how the Old Testament was pointing to himself. And then, so get this, they're talking to Jesus, about Jesus, walking with Jesus, telling Jesus about Jesus. Jesus is telling them about Jesus because they got it wrong all the while having no idea that they're talking to Jesus right there on the road. So Cleopas and his companion explain to the risen Christ their hopelessness. They explain to Jesus that Jesus was a prophet. And it's important to understand that we see that they're talking in the past tense. Jesus was a prophet. They had hoped he was the one. 
that he was going to redeem Israel. And so it's in their hopelessness and in their despair and in their thinking that they possibly wasted the last three years of their life with Jesus that they're leaving Jerusalem. They're leaving the place of the defeated and dead Jesus in their mind. And they're heading home. They're taking the the seven-mile walk of shame to Emmaus. But the man, Jesus, who they didn't recognize, begins to tell them a new story, a story that's going to change their reality, particularly when they find out who this man is. And Jesus begins with Moses and the prophets and starts in on what I would consider probably the greatest sermon never told because Luke doesn't tell us the story. Luke tells us two verses and just says, Jesus begins to tell how all the scriptures point to him. Like, come on, you can give us more than that, Luke, please. Like, that would be pretty fascinating to hear. In contrast, Luke gives us like six verses of Cleopas and his friends' misinterpretation of Scripture, but we only get two when it comes to Jesus giving us the secret of the whole thing. I'm going to stop there real quick because I think we do this often, myself included. We read and interpret the Bible much like Cleopas and his sidekick. We selectively read the Bible. We pull what we want from what we read, not seeing or understanding what's really there. It's when you have scripture passages that that seemingly contradict each other and we get the option to say, I like this one because it's easier to deal with. And you neglect the other truth. And this is how things like the prosperity gospel and the health and wealth gospel and the the name it and claim it and the blab it and grab it gospel. That's how all these things come about because we read scripture and we don't read others. You know, we read that Jesus is going to bless us and give us health and we think, yes, absolutely, I will take that. But Jesus also promises his followers trials and afflictions. And so we take the parts and the passages of Scripture that we love and that we've underlined in our Bibles, but we need to read the ones that come before those and the ones that come after those as well. I've heard, I've heard it said that the Christian's highlighter is a stumbling block to the breadth, understanding the breadth of the Bible. And it's because our eyes immediately go to the passages that we've read before and the passages that we love and the passages that we've memorized and that we've highlighted And we neglect the passages that come before and the passages that come after. And this was true for me as well. I remember being in college and hearing a lecture that that challenged uh, my view of Scripture. And so I wanted to share just the gist of that with you guys in hopes that maybe we could have a better, bigger scope of what Scripture can be. And so with that, we're going to pretend a little bit this morning. Can you guys do that? Can you guys do that? All right, okay. The reason I ask is because uh, I I'm, I'm, would consider myself somewhat of a professional pretender um, because I have a seven-year-old daughter and I pretend all the time. I pretend that I'm a prince and I'm a king and, and I'm a cat and I'm a dog and I'm a lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, yeah, we pretend all these things, right? And so this morning you guys are going to pretend a little bit. And you guys are going to pretend that you are good first century Jews. Can you do that? Sure, absolutely you can. I know you can. So as a good first century Jew, you, know, you already know all this, but we're just pretending. So as a good first century Jew, you would have headed off to school at about age six. And you would have gone to a Jewish school learning scripture. You would have learned and memorized scripture. And so from about age six to about age 10, you would have memorized the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You would have had those... You do have those memorized, right? Because you're good first century Jews, correct? You would have also memorized the Psalms because the Psalms were the easy thing to memorize, right? Because they were songs and so you got to sing them as a kid and you got to sing them in school and so you would have memorized those pretty quickly. 
So from about age 10, 11 to about age 15, 16, you would have gone on to the next level of school. And in the next level of school, you would have continued to learn and memorize scripture. So much so that you would have pretty much memorized the whole Old Testament by the age 15 or 16. Genesis to Malachi. Memorized. You guys have that memorized, right? Of course you do. And so, the reason I bring that up is because I think understanding that changes the way we might see some of the events in the New Testament. And so today, we're going to look, we're going to step back just a little bit to Good Friday and remember Jesus hanging on a cross. And Jesus hangs on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And today, we often uh, read that and we think, Man, that's just, it was at that point where Jesus was just so overtaken with sin and God had to turn his back. He had to turn away. He couldn't bear to look because there was just so much sin. But as a good first century Jew, you might hear that a little differently. Pretend, if you would, that you're a good first century Jew and you are there on that Good Friday. You are there seeing Jesus nailed to a cross. And Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you would have immediately thought of something. You would have immediately thought of Psalm 22 because it's a song that you memorized and that you learned when you were a little kid. And so just today, you guys know how it works. If I were to say amazing grace, how sweet the sound, what's next? Yeah, and you could go through the whole song. I know you could. And so in a very similar way, If you were there that day on Good Friday, you would begin to play the words of Psalm 22 in your mind. And so what I want you to do is close your eyes for a second and picture the Christ that's nailed to a tree in front of you and you're replaying these words in your mind because he's brought them to your memory. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, and I'm not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it's melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me and a band of evil men has encircled me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones and people stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothes. You can open your eyes. You can imagine, if you're a good first century Jew, 
and you're there on that Good Friday, and you're remembering these words because Jesus has brought them to your memory, you might wrestle with the question, what have we done? I think Jesus is being intentional with his words on the cross, and he's pointing the Old Testament to himself. Just like he's doing with these two from the road. Jesus explains how all of the Old Testament is pointing to himself, and they finally come upon Emmaus. And I love this because it says the text says that Jesus acts, that he pretends. Jesus acts as though he's going to keep going once they've reached Emmaus, that his destination is further. He pretended that he had somewhere else to go, but his real desire was to go inside and have dinner with these guys. It's kind of like that conversation, that, that strange Friday afternoon conversation that you might have with a coworker. What are you going to do tonight? Any big plans? And your response, oh, well, not much. I don't, have, I don't have too much going on. I mean, I might just go and do this or, or that. What about you? Oh, well, me, me and some friends are going to get together. It's going to be really great. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun because you would like to be invited, right? And so you say, that sounds great. Well, you know, yeah. But you wouldn't be able to come because you said you might have something to do. Well, my things, my things might be a little negotiable. I mean, I could probably move some things around and, and be available. I don't know. Your stuff sounds kind of kind of good and cool. Well, would you like to come? Yes, absolutely. I'll be there. Tell me what time to be there, right? Yeah. And so this is what, kind of what Jesus is doing. He's kind of putting the guilt trip on them, right, to, to have them invite him in. And so this unrecognizable Jesus comes in, and they lay the food out on the table, and they begin to eat. A quick side note, apparently dying and raising from the dead works up quite an appetite, because Jesus here invites himself into their house to have dinner, In a few verses later, in verse 41 of this chapter, he shows up to the disciples and the disciples uh, are are like flabbergasted because Jesus in flesh and bone is right there. And Jesus says, hey, um, do you guys have anything to eat? And then in John, we see that Jesus shows up on the shore while Peter's out fishing and Peter comes comes into shore and Jesus says, hey, uh, can you bring me some of those fish? And he cooks breakfast right there on the shore of the beach. But Jesus invites himself in and they begin to eat. And as Jesus took the bread, and as he prayed and gave thanks, and as he broke the bread and began to give it to them, he essentially took the role of a host in someone else's home. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized Jesus. And I love that this resurrected Jesus is generally unrecognizable until his followers experience something that they've experienced with him in the past. Remember, Mary sees him at the tomb, and she thinks he's the gardener until Jesus says her name, right? I can't help but think there's something unique about the way he said her name, Mary. That there's something unique about the way he said her name that helped her to see Jesus for who he was. That there was something in his voice, something about the way he talked to her that allowed her to overcome the doubt and overcome the grief and overcome the hopelessness and the misbelief that the Jesus that she loved was dead. It isn't until Jesus eats with these two that's something they may have done many times before. It's not until they eat together that they see Jesus as Jesus. It isn't until they share a meal with Jesus, something that's so very basic and so tactile and real and raw and sometimes messy, right? Especially if you have little ones, but beautiful all at the same time. It isn't until the meal, which is a place for laughing and crying, a place to to be seen and to be heard and to tell stories and create memories. It isn't until that meal 
that they're able to see Jesus rather than their doubt. It isn't until that meal that they're able to see Jesus rather than their hopelessness. It isn't until that meal that they're able to see Jesus rather than their shame. And in that moment, at that table, when their eyes are open, their world was changed. And they were given a new lens with which to see reality. So it's with that thought in mind that this morning we have the opportunity to come to that table and to share that meal and to recognize Jesus as Jesus. Amen.